I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Revelation 8. Continuing our walk through the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, it will not be long at this point before we actually divert for a few weeks, uh, coming through the trumpet judgments today, uh, and then we'll be hitting kind of a parenthetical, as, as we would interpret it. And as we do so, we're going to find ourselves for a couple of weeks in Daniel, in Ezekiel. Um, we'll be going through some Zechariah, some Joel, some Malachi, uh, walking through various Old Testament elements to try to bridge the gaps and connect some dots. Much of what we understand from the end times is not found in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, as we've walked through Revelation over the past uh, several weeks, I've uh, mentioned regularly, time and again, how much we are assuming things, right? But many of those assumptions are based upon uh, elements that we are drawing from Old Testament scriptures, particularly Daniel 9 through 12. So we're going to be going to those scriptures, but today we find ourselves in the trumpet judgments. Six of the seven seals have been opened to this point. The world has been plunged into bitter turmoil. We, we will not cover all the trumpet judgments today. Um, we'll, we'll be covering the last of the seals and then into the trumpet judgments. So the world is in bitter turmoil. Uh, at this point, um, a, a full half of the world's population has been destroyed, according to the Word of God. That through war, famine, civil unrest, animal attacks... All sorts of natural and unnatural things. At the opening of the sixth seal, remember, there was this huge earthquake. This earthquake shifted topography. The heavens opened like a scroll. The stars fell from the heaven to the earth. People on the earth fled. They hid themselves in the caves of the earth. They begged the mountains to fall on them, to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. But it would seem that the opening of the sixth seal served another important purpose, as we considered last week. Not only did the unbelieving world see these signs and recognize the wrath of the Lamb, that the wrath of the Lamb had come, but the believing, uh, the, the, the Jewish world, excuse me, the, the Jewish world sees the, the sixth seal open and they see it as a direct sign, a direct fulfillment of Joel chapter 2, which it is. And presumably, as a result of this direct fulfillment of Joel 2, the first half of that prophecy of which was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, the second half of which is fulfilled when the sixth seal is opened in Revelation chapter 6, 144,000 in Israel are sealed. There were several thousand that were saved on the day of Pentecost, several thousand more that were saved over the, next, uh, over the several days after that of the Jewish community back in Acts. Now we see 144,000 Jews in a matter of a small period of time being saved following the reality of the prophecy of Joel 2 and its fulfillment at the opening of the sixth seal. So these 144,000 of the nation of Israel, 12 out of every tribe but the tribe of Dan, and we talked about why last week perhaps that was the case, these are sealed. They're protected. They're commissioned to be witnesses to the rest of the world. And they will need protection. They'll need it deeply because things are about to get significantly worse. So we pick up today in Revelation 8, and I hope to get through two full chapters of Scripture today, Revelation chapter 8 and 9. And we pick up with the opening of the seventh seal. And let me, let me remind you how this works again, or generally how it works. Remember that there are three sets of judgments. There are the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the vile judgments. The first are, are initiated 
by Christ through the opening of the seals. The second set is the contents of the book itself, perhaps the first side of the scroll, if we see it as a two-sided scroll being opened. And then these are the trumpet judgments, and then the um, vile judgments come after that. But what we sort of find is that with the opening of the seventh seal, this is actually a part of the opening of the seventh seal is the initiation of the seven trumpets. And a part of the blowing of the seventh trumpet is the initiation of the seven vials. To that end, we might actually see it as a part of the seventh seal, the seven trumpets, and a part of the seventh trumpet is the seven vials. So that's kind of what we're looking at here. As we step into the trumpet judgments, the seventh seal is opened, and this will initiate an, an activity of its own, but it will also bring about the seven trumpet judgments, of which um, we, we will read about in just a few minutes. So we read in Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. So you see how this works. That there's silence in heaven, and there's a few other things that are going to take place here, but at the moment of the, the breaking of the seventh seal, which would officially loose the scroll and allow it to be opened, the, the seven angels are given these seven trumpets. So the Bible says that there was a moment of silence, as it were, a, a silence of one half hour in the heavens at the opening of the the seventh seal. We would likely understand this to simply be what we call the calm before the storm. Uh, as you would kind of see sometimes before a hurricane, or if you're in the eye of the hurricane, there's this uh, tremendous calm, and then the storm really hits. That sort of an idea. Uh, this calm might be a, a moment of, of, of uh, a moment of silence uh, for the destruction that is about to take place. So John then sees these seven angels, and they're given seven trumpets. Now, as we talked about before, trumpets in the Bible are often a sign of something, uh, of the initiation of something. It's the sound of a warning or the sound of an arrival or the sound of a victory. So if, uh, if the armies of the enemy are coming, there would be trumpets sounded throughout the land to warn that they were coming. Uh, if the battle has been won, there would be trumpets that would sound to say that the battle has been won. Uh, during the, the victory march, when the king enters back into his kingdom, uh, there would be trumpets sounding to announce that he had arrived. This is the idea behind trumpets, and certainly we'll see all of these things come into play with the trumpet judgments. The idea of warning, the idea of the arrival of something, the idea certainly of a victory as well. But this is not the only set of angels that John sees, nor is the sounding of the trumpets the very next thing that takes place. Follow with me as we continue in verses 3 through 6. The Bible says, And another angel came and stood at the altar, having the golden censer, and there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense which uh, came with the prayers of the saints, ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and cast it into the earth. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and earthquakes and an earthquake. And the seven angels, which had the seven trumpets, prepared themselves to sound. So we find that also connected directly with the opening of the seventh seal is another action in the heavenlies, and then that action would, would give way to an action upon the earth. John sees another angel, an eighth angel, different from the seven angels that have the trumpets, and he comes having a censer, a censer in his hand, and he st stands at 
the altar, John calls it. This is only the second time that we've come across this concept of an altar in heaven in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not in any of John's descriptions of the throne room as uh, we saw him describe uh, Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 and, and uh, heaven and the throne room of heaven in Revelation uh, um, 4 and, and following. We didn't see this. He, he described the throne. He described uh, the emerald rainbow. He described the, light, the lightnings and the fires and the four beasts and the 24 elders and the angels. And he described the seven fires, which are the seven spirits of God. And he described the lamb that was slain. He described all these things. But what he didn't describe was an altar which is kind of interesting. However, we know it's there, and this is certainly not the first time that we see an altar in the heavenlies. As a matter of fact, going all the way back to Isaiah, we can understand this concept of the altar. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is called. That's his great commissioning. And in this great commissioning, he sees the heavens open up, and he sees the Lord on the throne, and he sees the seraphim, and they're crying, holy, holy, holy. And he says that the post of the door shook at the voice of them that cried. And then he says he saw an angel take tongs and take a coal from off the altar in heaven and place it on his lips and effectively sanctify him for the work. Ezekiel saw a similar thing. So the concept of an altar in heaven is not at all unusual. In this instance, the Bible says that the angel stands at the altar and he has a golden censer in his hand. Now, censers are still used today in many liturgical denominations. It is a canister, as it were, and it's fitted to carry incense. Potent spices which, when lit, let off a very strong odor, some of them pleasant, some of them less than pleasant, uh, depending on where you are and what, what the occasion happens to be. Uh, but it lets off this odor, the, 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 the smoke of the incense, as it comes through the censer. Now, the Bible says that the eighth angel was given one of these, and he was given much incense, and it was designated to be offered with the prayers of the saints upon the golden altar. As the smoke of the incense lifted, the prayers of the saints ascended before the Lord. This is a somewhat common picture throughout the Bible, the idea that the prayers of, of, of the saints lift up before the Lord as smoke. We actually see it in, in the, the concept of um, the burnt offerings, that the smoke of the burnt offerings would be what the Bible calls a sweet-smelling savor before the Lord because it is a reflection of obedience. In the same way, the incense all the way back to the Old Testament, is intended to represent the prayers of the saints as they lift up and they, they are a sweet-smelling odor unto the Lord. The Lord loves it when His people pray. God desires His people to pray. God longs for His people to pray. So the prayers of the saints on earth are going on. The incense is lifting up from the altar of incense and the censer in the heavenlies. And we find them to be one and the same. The angel takes the censer and fills it with fire from off the altar, the Bible says. It would be this fire from off the altar that would cause the incense to burn, that would cause the smoke to rise. There's much more that we could say about this. I wish we could go into the Old Testament and connect all the dots with this this morning. We can't, but I am going to connect a few for you this morning. I want to take it a little bit further. And the reason why is because in Hebrews chapter 8, the Bible says that the Old Testament tabernacle, as it was commanded to be built by Moses and by the people, was intended to be a, spiritual, a, a replica of a spiritual tabernacle. 
that it was intended. God said, make sure that you build it in this exact way as a replica of something that is in the heavenlies. And we're seeing just a little bit of that today. We are seeing that there is, in fact, in the heavenlies, an altar of incense. We are seeing that there is, in fact, in the heavenlies, some of these same pieces of furniture that we would find in the tabernacle in the temple. Now, from an earthly perspective, the tabernacle began with the altar of uh, the brazen altar of burnt offering. If you're looking at with me, we're going from right to left here, um, and that would be how, if we were looking on a map, you would see the temple because it was always going facing toward the east. And so, from an earthly perspective, you'd start with the brazen altar. And, and on the brazen altar would be where the sacrifices were made, where sins were atoned, where these, these lambs would be, would be slain, where the blood of the altar would pour forth, where the bodies of these lambs would be burnt, where the, the sins were atoned. Once the sins were atoned through the sacrifice of the priest, they would pass through the brazen laver, which was a washing basin whereby they would be cleansed. They would change their clothes. Of course, their clothes would have been all bloody and such from the sacrifice, right? It would have been a quite, quite a bloody mess with these sacrifices. They would wash themselves, they would cleanse themselves, they would purify themselves before going into the tabernacle proper, which was made up of two compartments. There was a holy place, and then there was a place that we call the Holy of Holies, and very few pieces of furniture within. Now, we, uh, you go to the Old Testament, and you can read about the curtains, and the rings, and the staves, and the, and the gates, and the fences, and all of these things, and, and all of it's very interesting. We've done that before. We did it when we were in Ezekiel. We'll do it again, most likely, um, not too far from now. Um, uh, well, relatively speaking. Uh, but we, we will get there at, at um, a point in the future as we start doing the Pentateuch uh, not too long. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy in the future. The priest would go in there, and within that first compartment, there would be a table of showbread, upon which would be 12 pieces of unleavened bread, Showbread that the priests were allowed to eat. And then on the other side, opposite of that, would be the golden lampstand. The golden lampstand, the candles in the golden lampstand were to be perpetually lit from fire from off the altar. They were to be dressed every day. They were to maintain that light, that there was always to be a perpetual light. These are representative. As a matter of fact, everything in the tabernacle represents Christ in one way, shape, or form. Going beyond that, there was this altar of incense. Now, I'm in an extreme minority here. In fact, I don't think I've ever found any commentator to agree with me on this, that the altar of incense was actually within the Holy of Holies, not on the outside, just in the holy place. And the reason why this is very difficult is because every day the priests were called to, to light the altar of incense and to pray unto the Lord during the time of prayer the altar of incense would be lit how if they can only walk into the Holy of Holies one day a year on the day of atonement could they possibly light the altar of incense every day if it was within the Holy of Holies great question I have no answer for you on that question however the Old Testament does not tell us the pre precise location of the altar except to tell us this. In Exodus chapter 40 verse 5 the Bible says, Thou shalt set an altar of gold for the incense before the ark of the testimony and put the hanging of the door to the tabernacle. 
That word before the Ark of the Testimony means in the face of the Ark of the Testimony. The Ark of the Testimony was the place where the presence of God would be. It had the Ark of the Covenant. Above that was the mercy seat and the cherubim, right? This was where the presence of God resided. And the Bible does say that they would place it before the Ark of the Testimony, in the face of. Well, that's okay. You could still have a curtain between them. Certainly, you could. By tradition, they say, well, it was simply placed on just the other side of the curtain in the holy place. But then I read Hebrews chapter 9, and it just throws everything off. Because when I read Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 4, Paul says this, Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. He says within the sanctuary, the holy place, he says there's three things, the candlestick, the table, and the showbread. Verse 3, And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censure, and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded in the tables of the covenant. Look, I can't get around that. Hebrews chapter 9 says that the golden censure was inside the second veil. What does that mean? I don't know. Maybe they were allowed to move the curtain to perform the act, but they couldn't walk through it. Maybe they had a means by which to take a rod and to pull the censure out to fit it with incense and then to put it back in. But I love this. Do you want to know why I love this so much? Because God wanted the prayer of his saints in his presence. God wanted the prayers of the saints with him. There was no veil between him and the prayers of his saints. There was no veil between him and the incense that would lift up. And that's a picture of the heavenlies, where in the heavenlies there is an incense altar right in front of his eyes where the prayers of his saints come. Look, prayer is powerful. If you don't believe prayer is powerful, Revelation chapter 8 tells us that the prayers of the saints are right before the face of God. Hebrews chapter 9 tells us in relation to what Hebrews 8 said, which is that the heavenly tabernacle is a picture, or the the earthly tabernacle is a picture of the heavenly. And Hebrews 9 says that the altar of incense was within the second veil, right before the presence of the Lord. This is a picture of prayer. This is the power of prayer. And so that's what we see here. Now, I don't want to get too distracted with the technicalities, but we believe the Bible is true. This is what the Bible says. So I'm going to believe it, even though I don't fully understand it. I'd love to talk about all of the things surrounding the tabernacle. I'd love to talk about the order of events as it relates to the tabernacle. I'd love to talk about the significance of the fire which lights the candles and which must be lit by the, by the, the fires of the altar So much so that when Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, tried to bring strange fire into the tabernacle and use strange fire to worship the Lord, they they were destroyed. They were struck dead for offering this strange fire. I'd love to talk about what that teaches about grace, what that teaches about Christ, what that teaches about His all sufficient offering. There's just no time today. But as it relates to Revelation, none of that is the point. The point is that as these horrible things are happening on the earth, we read last week about the 144,000 that are sealed. We read about the many that were martyred, many that were in the heavenlies who had, been, who had been on earth and saying, Lord, how long before you avenge us, right? We've read about these things. And the point is this, that as all of these things are happening on earth, the prayers of the saints are still lifting up to God. God has not abandoned them. God has not forgotten them. God has not forgotten those that are in the heavenlies. 
who have been martyred, who are, who are waiting God's justice. God has not forgotten those on earth who are about to go through a terrible time and great suffering. God still hears the prayers of His saints. God is not ignorant of their cries. God has not turned a deaf ear to their pleas. God is still watching them with tender care. And may I remind you as well that that's today also. Sometimes it feels as though God is distant. At times that's because of us, right? We say, well, if we feel like God's far from us, it wasn't God that moved. But other times it's not just, it's not sin. It's not that Isaiah... Uh, idea that Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 idea, that our sin has separated us between, uh, between us and God, that our sins have hid, hid His face from us, that He will not hear. Sometimes it's just, you're weary, you're tired, you're distracted, whatever it might be, and it's as if the heavens are glass, are brass, are stone, are something, and things are just bouncing. We're reminded that the prayers of the saints are before Him day and night, in the altar in the heavenlies. We continue then, having seen this and knowing this with the trumpet judgments. Chapter 8, verses 7 through 12, we read this. The first angel sounded, and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood, and they were uh, cast upon the earth. They were cast upon the earth, and the third part of the trees were burnt up, and all the green grass was burnt up. And the second angel sounded. And as it were, a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea, and a third part of the sea became blood. And the third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died. And a third part of the ships were destroyed. And the third angel sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven, burning as it were a lamp. And it fell upon the third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of waters. And the name of the star is called Wormwood. And the third part of the waters became Wormwood. And many men died of the waters because they were made bitter." And the fourth angel sounded, and the third part of the sun was smitten, and the third part of the moon, and the third part of the stars, so as the third part of them was darkened, and the day shone not for a third part of it, and the night likewise. So I've read for you the first four of seven trumpets. They come quite quickly here in succession in our text, just, just a, a matter of, of uh, five or six verses, and we have uh, four of these judgments. There does seem to be a division between the first four judgments, those which I've just read, and the final three, which the Bible is going to call the woe judgments. And that being because angels declare woe upon the earth for the things which are going to take place during them. When the first trumpet sounds, John sees, and this is similar to what we actually see of the plagues of Egypt back in the days of Moses, John sees hail and fire. Hail and fire fell in Exodus chapter 9, verse 24, in the days of, of Moses and the Exodus. The Bible says here, hail and fire mingled with blood is cast upon the earth. That the hail and the fire fall together is not surprising. These are two uh, semi-explainable events. Hail and then the fire. Uh, there's always a question as to what exactly that means, whether it's some sort of divine fire or whether it's just uh, vast amounts of lightning. Either way, I don't think it really matters that much. The hail doing the physical damage, the lightning kind of catching things on fire and burning up whatever's left, the hail destroying, the fire burning... And things do burn up. The Bible says one-third of all the trees and all the green grass burn up. Imagine, after the six sealed judgments, the world is reeling. The world is attempting to rebuild. And then this hail and this fire come and destroy 
all of these trees and all of the grass. There have been these earthquakes. There was this famine. And now after this famine, all of the, 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 all of the stuff that you're attempting to grow again, to feed the earth again, is destroyed by this hail and this fire. What is curious about this as well, though, is we have this idea of hail and fire mingled with blood. I've not yet in my studies found a very satisfactory explanation for this. For this reason, many people make it metaphorical. They say that the destruction spoken here is actually not real hail and fire mingled with blood, but instead it's a rift between, say, civil institutions and religious institutions. And one is hail and one is fire, and they're coming against each other, and that creates a great battle, and then there's blood. Uh, I see no reason, especially as the language, as it relates so closely to the plagues in Israel, as it relates, as they, they talk about the results of the hail and fire, right, that the trees and the grass are burned up. Uh, I see no reason to make it metaphorical. But I, I don't know what this blood is per se. It could be that John just sees many people dying from this, and that's the idea there. If you know of a good explanation that you've heard of, by all means, please come talk to me afterwards. I'd love to hear it. I've not, in my studies, found a satisfactory answer for what, what it is that we're seeing there. Of course, much of this is open to interpretation. The second trumpet sounds in a huge burning mountain Likely something like a vast asteroid falls into the sea and a third of the sea becomes blood. A third of the creatures die. A third of the ships are destroyed. This very large burning mountain falls. If something like that were to happen and to fall into the sea, it would boil up much of the water. And if it fell in the right location, uh, uh, tremendous things like this could take place. The sea would be Boiled up, a vast number of the wildlife would die, many ships would be destroyed. Again, whether the blood is some divine sign to the earth or whether John is simply seeing the massive casualties of the event, we don't know. The third trumpet sounds, and the Bible says a star falls from heaven as uh, burning as a lamp. We see a, a contrast here that helps us. In the second trumpet, we see a mountain falling from heaven, right? And, and it falls into the sea. In the third judgment, trumpet judgment, we see the stars falling from heaven. And we interpreted in Revelation chapter 6 the stars falling from heaven as a cosmological event. And that is uh, very much possible. It is also possible, and, and I think uh, more likely, in this event, particularly, that the star is an angel. We're going to see all throughout the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ that when the Bible talks about stars, we're actually dealing with angels. Um, and so whereas in the second trumpet, the mountain fell from heaven, probably some sort of asteroid of some sort, in this third trumpet judgment, the star falling from heaven is most, most likely an angel. And we'll see as we continue in the trumpet judgments another angel called a star. That being said, because of that inconsistency, it might be wise for us to go back and reconsider a little bit of what Revelation chapter 6 says about the stars falling from heaven and think about that in different terms. It might be that the stars falling from heaven there could be something more angel-esque than actually cosmological. It could be that the stars falling from heaven there might actually relate to what we'll see a little bit later in Revelation uh, when John is depicting some things happening in the heavenlies when the dragon is kicked out of heaven and the stars are sent 
with him a third of the stars of heaven, that being a picture of Satan and his disobedient angels. We're not quite sure how that plays out, but, but I am quite confident that this, this star that, small, that falls from heaven at the third trumpet is an angelic being. And this being is named Wormwood. Whether this is an elect angel or a demon, we do not know. But this wormwood touches one-third of the fresh water sources on earth and they become poisoned. Many die by drinking them. So at this point, things might be getting somewhat desperate, right? Fresh water is becoming more scarce. The seas have been, uh, by and large, ruined by that great mountain that fell from, from the heavens. The trees have been burned up, a third of them. And the grass has been burned up. Things are becoming more scarce. And we come to the fourth trumpet judgment. The angel sounds and one-third of the sun is affected, the Bible says. There's an interesting explanation for this in the text. It would, not se- it would seem not that like one-third of the sun burns out, or that even the sun is reduced one-third in brightness per se, but rather that for one-third of the day, the sun does not shine. For four out of the 12-hour period that we call day, the sun will not shine. And likewise, one-third of the night, the moon will not shine. For four hours of every 12-hour period in the night, the moon will not reflect the sun's light. And furthermore, for one-third or four hours of every 12-hour period, the stars will cease to shine. Now, this concept is so foreign to me from a physical perspective, I don't quite know how to process the description. You think, well, one-third of, of the sun, so a third of the sun goes away. Well, that makes, I mean, I guess I could see that, the, the sun being a third. But then you say, well, what about the one-third of the moon? Uh, there's, there's plenty of nights where you only see a third of the moon, right? Already, because the moon is simply reflecting the sun and based upon its position with the earth and whatnot. You have crescent moons and whatnot, so it can't really mean that. Nor, nor does the explanation really lend itself to that because it says that for one-third of the day, the, the sun does not shine, and for one-third of the night, the, the moon does not reflect that light. So, so that seems to be what happens. It's almost as if the, the, the sun is covered by, by, by God's hand, or, or the, the sun uh, starts to, maybe like, like a light that's going out, it kind of flickers off, then it flickers back on after a little while, and then it flickers off again, and you look at that light, and you, and you just need to change that light because it's flickering. Maybe it's sort of that idea, is where, where the sun is actually um, starting to burn itself out, and so uh, there are four hours of every day, and then four hours of every night where the sun is not shining, so four out of every 12 hours, and then during that time, of course, whatever side of the earth the moon is on, is not reflecting light anymore because the moon is not, I mean, the sun is not shining, so the moon is not reflecting, and that's happening four out of every 12 hours. And then the stars are veiled as well, which does tell us that it's more than just the sun burning out, right? Because the stars are veiled. So there's something sheathing the earth almost from light for four out of every 12 hours of the day. And that leads us to the final verse of chapter 8. This will bridge us into chapter 9. The Bible says this, And I beheld and heard an angel fly through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the voices of the trumpet of the three angels which are yet to sound. So the angel says, If you think these first four were bad, you just wait. Woe to the earth for that which is coming next. Three woes, 
three trumpets that are yet to sound. And we begin to read those in chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. The Bible says, The fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth, and to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit, as the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, and unto them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. To them it was given that they should not kill but that they should be tormented five months. And their torment was as the torment of a scorpion when he striketh a man. So we come into the first of what the angels call the woe judgments, the fifth trumpet. And we notice right off the bat that we have another star fall from heaven. And this star is given direct personality. It's called a hymn, right? And this hymn, this star that fell from heaven, has a, has a key to the bottomless pit in his hand. We uh, have studied the bottomless pit before. This, this star is obviously a different star than the one named Wormwood. And we've studied this bottomless pit. It's a holding place for disobedient angels where they remain in chains. We would believe this to be somewhere within the earth's crust along with Hades and Abraham's bosom, these various waiting places as the Bible describes them. I'm not going to get into all of that today. I have described it in various messages in the past, which you can always find on our website. The angel opens the bottomless pit, and out of the pit comes tremendous smoke, like a great furnace. Uh, this would make sense. The crust of the earth is indeed uh, opening here. Smoke would billow out. Uh, the air is darkened. Perhaps it's even that the, the key to the bottomless pit is somewhere in the, the oceans, the waters. So when it's opened, the waters are pouring into the crust of the earth. That's hot. It's going to build, create billows of smoke. However it might work, that's what we see here. And out of this pit comes beasts. And these beasts are unknown to John. He is attempting to use physical features to describe them, but he doesn't really... It's, it's unlike anything he's ever seen before. We'll see this when we get to Daniel, that Daniel looks at the various kingdoms and their beasts that he can recognize until he gets to the fourth kingdom. And the beast of the fourth kingdom, he says, I just, I don't know what to make of it. He's never seen anything like it before. It looks like nothing. So he uses the attributes of other animals and such to describe. It's the same thing that happened with the four beasts in the heavens, right? One with the face of a man, one with the face of an ox, one with the face of an eagle. Uh, the, the idea there being, he can't really categorize them, so he's just trying to tell you what they kind of look like. And what they kind of look like are locusts. Perhaps thus far, maybe small and fast and numerous swarm mentality. They're given to sting and to bite and to claw. They're creatures designed to torment. But they're told not to hurt the earth. Now, locusts typically are a scourge upon the earth, right? If a, 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 a herd of locusts or whatever they are, a flock, a herd, a whatever, if a, if a band of locusts come through, um, they are going to eat things, right? They're going to destroy the crops. They are going to destroy the vegetation. And they, they can be a tremendous plague upon particularly farmers. But these locusts are called not to eat the, the earth or hurt the earth, but rather to hurt the men of the earth. And not just the men of the earth, but only those that are not sealed. So very similar to what we remember back in the plagues of Egypt, where at some point God separated Israel from the Egyptians and the plagues only afflicted the Egyptians. So to here, at this point, the plagues are only afflicting those that are not sealed with the seal of God. 
those who do not have the seal of God on their forehead. This would most certainly include the 144,000 at least. It might include many others, um, uh, depending on how the sealing relates to salvation. We talked a little bit about that last week and, and gave our, our theories about that. So imagine a creature which acts like a locust, swarming, swift, but instead of devouring land, it torments men. And it was only torment. They're commanded explicitly not to kill men, but only to torment them, to bite them, to sting them in a way that was extremely painful, but that would not kill them. And that these creatures would be doing this for a full five months upon the earth. Uh, you might uh, expect that, that the people of the earth are, are effectively kind of in house arrest. They don't want to go outside because these things are out there and they're tormenting and uh, they can't get away from them and they find their way into cracks and crevices and, and, and they are tormenting the earth. We continue in verses 6 through 12. And in those days shall men seek death and shall not find it, shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. And the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle, and on their heads were as it were crowns like gold, and their faces were as faces of men, and they had hair as the hair of women, and their teeth were as the teeth of lions, and they had breastplates as it were breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots of many horses running to battle. And they had tails like unto scorpions, and there were stings in their tails, and their power was to hurt men five months and they had a king over them which is the angel of the bottomless pit whose name in Hebrew tongue is Abaddon but in the Greek tongue his name is Apollyon one woe is past and behold there come two woes more hereafter so in these days men will want to die for torment they are under but they will there will be some sort of dis, di, divine incapacity for them to die again we don't know what this means but they'll want to die, but will not find the means by which to die. Like someone actually being tortured, who, if their torturer does not, uh, doesn't help them along, if their torturer does the job correctly, makes sure that they get the maximum amount of pain while simultaneously keeping them from, from dying. That's kind of the idea here. They are, the earth is going to be tortured for five months. They're going to be brought to the cusp of death in pain, but they're not going to be allowed to die. Five months will this period be. And then John describes these beasts. He says they look like horses. They have golden heads of some sort, like crowns on their heads. They have humanoid faces in some way, shape, or form. Maybe that just means they have eyes and a mouth, kind of like. We, 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 we don't know. We don't know what it means. We don't know what he's looking at here. I'm sure that, that they'll know it when they see it. They have long hair or fur, like, like women's hair, so it's long and kind of flowing. Uh, sharp teeth proportional to their body size in the same proportion we might say as a lion's teeth to his head size and body size tails like scorpions with which they sting men their flight together is loud I mean that's already kind of the way it is with locusts you can hear them because of the beating of so many wings and that's sort of an idea except in this case it sounds like chariots and if you've ever seen a documentary or whatnot on horses running in chariots it shakes the earth shakes the earth and they had a leader, the Bible says, an angel of the bottomless pit, one presumably locked in there for who knows how long. His Hebrew name is Abaddon. In Greek, he's called Apollyon. Both of those names mean the same thing. The word means destroyer. He's the destroyer. And he is the king over these locusts, the king of the bottomless pit. One woe is past, and the next begins. Verses 13 through 19. And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice 
from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel, which had the trumpet, Loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. And the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year for to slay the third part of men. And the number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000,000, and I heard the number of them. Thus I saw the horses in the vision, and them that sat upon them, having breastplates of fire and of jacinth and of brimstone. And the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions, and out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone. By these three were the third part of men killed by fire and by smoke and by brimstone, which issued out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails were like unto serpents and had heads, and with them they do hurt. So the sounding of the sixth trumpet, the second woe, John hears a voice from the altar before God saying to the angel which had the sixth trumpet to loose the four angels which were bound in the great river Euphrates. The Euphrates is recorded as being in existence since before the flood of Noah's day. It's an ancient landmark which has cradled some of the most glorious and grand civilizations that the world history has ever known. The text tells us that the angels had been bound somewhere in the river. We have very little information to go off of as to what this means. Perhaps they'd been bound since the days of Noah. These entities are then released. They're released, the text says, at a specific hour and day and month and year. So there's some event to which their release will correspond. Some event that is ordained, that when it is, they're released. Maybe many theorize that 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 release is at the midpoint of the tribulation. That's why some theorize that this is around the midpoint of the tribulation. That's another point that they point to. Maybe this is the midpoint. Maybe at the moment that Antichrist places himself on the the, the throne in the, in the temple and he proclaims himself to be God and the abomination of desolation takes place. Perhaps it is at that point that these four angels are loose. That's the day and the moment and the hour. We don't know. Just speculation. But their purpose is to slay another third of men. They have an army with them and the Bible describes them as having 200 million in number in this army. Armored on horses, terrifying they kill with fire that proceeds out of their mouths. Their tails have heads on them. So some two-headed creature of some sort, both heads spewing fire. A quarter of the earth's population destroyed by the sixth seal, another third of the earth's population destroyed by these angels, and we find that half of the earth's population is gone. And thus we understand the reality of Jesus' words in Matthew 21, 24, excuse me, 21 and 22. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should be no flesh saved, but for the elect's sake those days should be shortened. All of humanity would be wiped out if not for God's mercy, and God's mercy for the sake of those who are elect. And this brings us to our final consideration for today. The final two verses of chapter 9. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk, neither repented they of the murders nor of the sorceries nor of the fornication of their thefts. Half of the world's population is dead. There is no question that the source of this destruction is divine. 
But those who do not repent do not repent because they refuse to repent. Their idolatry and their evil and their wickedness and their immorality, they refuse. They love the wages of unrighteousness, as the Bible says. So they defiantly shake their fists at God rather than giving him any sort of glory. We stop there in our exposition today. We're going to go on to the point of application in just a moment. I, I realize that uh, on, on a day that is intended to be defined by such joy, this is a unique message. I, I was debating whether or not to continue through the series or start something different uh, for today, particularly because we have baptisms coming up and it is a time of joy. But, but as we consider the events of today within Revelation chapter 8 and 9, Let me just say this as it relates to the occasion for which we gather after our service, the baptisms that are to take place. The world repented not of their idols of gold and silver and brass and stone, of their worshiping of devils, that because their hearts had been hardened because belief is not about evidence. Belief is a choice. Belief is something that we choose to do or not to do. The capacity for self-deception among mankind is so great that as God reveals himself to us and he gives us that way, the way of life or the way of death, the way of eternal life or the way of destruction, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago in Revelation chapter 6, the hinge upon which that swings is not how much evidence you have. It's whether or not you choose to believe on the name of the only begotten Son of God. As we consider this, let us be reminded that what we read, these ones who repented not, though they've seen such evidence, this is intended to be the direct opposite of us. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, this is not you. This is everything that you are not. The worshiping of devils and of idols, of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone, the murders and the sorceries and the fornications and the thefts, the following, as we, as we, we talked about in Sunday school this morning, our God being our bellies, right? The idea being following after our lusts, living for the things of this life. Look, This life is going to burn up. The things of this world are going to burn up. The very essence of what it means to be a believer, the very essence of those who are coming forward today to get baptized, to say, I am buried with him by baptism into death. I am raised to walk in newness of life. The essence of that newness of life is the opposite of this. That these men and women have come to the point in their lives where they say, Christ is worth more than this life. I believe it. I believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man cometh unto the Father but by him. And because of that, I am going to reckon myself as the Bible reckons me, dead indeed to sin and alive unto Christ. And how different is that from the world around us? Look, the people of Revelation chapter 9, verses 20 and 21 are not actually any different than the people that are around us today. The same unbelief exists, but how different is the believer in Jesus Christ? Not because of you, 
I'm not patting you on the back for accepting Christ as your Savior. I'm patting Christ on the back for saving us. Because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, because you know if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, that old things are passed away, that all things are become new, and that there is something different to be had. And that's how we live. That's what it means to be a Christian, a little Christ. To live a life of distinction, not among our peers. We don't look around at others and say, am I doing better than him? Am I doing better than her? To live a life of distinction as before the Lord. I hope that that's you this morning as a believer. I hope that that's what it means to you. I hope that you are following Christ. Our second point, which was going to be and is the direct point this morning as far as we're concerned, is to go back to this concept of prayer. As we apply, when you study the Bible, you always want to start by understanding it. You walk through it. You understand what the words mean. You understand what it means in context. You learn. But then don't forget to take it and apply it to your life. What can I draw out of the Word of God that God wants me to learn of Himself? What does it mean about God? What does it mean about me? What can I take from it? And what we can take from this this morning, manifold, but the one I am drawing your attention to this morning is prayer. We talked about it briefly. We talked about the altar of incense before the throne of God. May I just remind you what the Bible tells us about prayer this morning? Jesus says in Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11, Ask and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you, whom if his son ask bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? The promises of the Word of God in regard to prayer are vast. Through prayer, we know the will of God. Through prayer, we have the desires of our heart. Through prayer, we have our needs met. Through prayer, we can see spiritual material changes affected in both the seen and the unseen world. The Word of God is filled with these promises, which we must, if we believe the Bible, believe as well. It is true. Can it possibly be true that God is desiring, aching to bless me, to show me His will, to provide for my needs? Can that be true? Jesus says it's true. Is it possibly true that God, as a loving Father, delights in giving good things to them that ask Him? The Bible says it's true. Not only can it be true, but it must be true. And here's our confidence when we know this to be true, that when we ask If we don't receive, there's a reason. Like a child who petitions his father for something good, believing, trusting, and knowing that his father's love toward him is great, and knowing that his father's heart is to bless him, and knowing that his father's heart can be moved by his petitions, then I know that when I ask, I can expect God to want to bless me. And so, if the thing does not come to pass, this one thing I know that either there's a reason why God cannot bless me, sin, rebellion, selfishness, grieving, or quenching the Spirit of God, or the thing which I'm asking is not actually the thing that is in my best interest. 
Look, my children come up and ask me for things all day, every day. They ask me for treats. They ask me for this. They ask me for that. Can we go here? Can we do this thing? Can I have that thing? Uh, can I have another cookie? Can we have more ice cream? Can, I, uh, can we have this for lunch? Can we have that for dinner? And with each request, they come with a confidence that their father loves them and desires to bless them. But there are more things in my mind than just giving my children what they want. There's doing what's best for my children. And if my children have been royal terrors all day, I cannot then sit them down and give them a bunch of treats. Because what am I doing? I'm confirming them in their poor behavior. And so my children say, may I have something? And I say, I would love to give you that, but I can't because of your actions. Or it may be that, I, that my, my children come to me and say, may I please have this treat? And I say, I think, in the fatherly way, meal in 30 minutes. Don't want to ruin dinner. Need them to eat their vegetables. It's very important that they eat those first. So I tell them no. Not because I don't love them. Not because I don't want what's best for them. But because I have the priorities that are best for them in place. And because I know what's best for them, I have to do what's best for them even if it's not what they think they want. And if my children understand this concept and love me, then what they'll do is they'll say, I asked for it. Dad said no. Thank you, Dad, for doing what's best for me. Even if that means no to what I asked of you. Because it's not what's best for me if you didn't give it to me. What a tremendous confidence this is then. That when I lay something before the Lord and I'm asking for His wisdom, that if I do not receive it, well, of course, the first thing I do is I check my heart. Is there something between me and God? Is there some reason that God cannot give me the good thing that I seek? Is there something between me and my Savior? And if there's not, then I ask. And if I don't receive, then, then I know that it's not what's best for me. Because God is going to give me what's best for me. And I know this because I know that that altar of incense is before the throne in heaven. And that God sees it, smells it. He wants it there because He loves me. I could go through many of the parables. I preached through them in Luke not too long ago. I'm going to skip those and I'm going to jump to a few other concepts as we close this morning. Remember what the Bible says about prayer in Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Be careful, full of care for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. When my child asks for something, and they think they want it, and they think they need it, and I say no, though they might be disappointed, do you know what also they can feel? Is the peace of knowing that Dad has their best interests in mind. They don't have to carry the burden of wondering or asking or, 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 or wanting anymore because they've laid that burden before God and God is going to take care of it. God, God has heard it. God knows it. I don't have to be full of cares because my Lord knows what I'm asking. Are you praying but not finding peace today? If you lack peace in your life, in your decisions, it's not for lack of access to peace. Maybe you're praying amiss. Maybe you're seeking the wrong thing. Maybe God has already answered you, but you've refused to see it or regard it. There's something deeply wrong with the church today. Not this church in particular, but the church. Because we aren't praying 
And when we do pray, we aren't receiving and we aren't hearing and we aren't being directed and we have no peace. And this is not, indeed it cannot be what God intended, which means there's something wrong. What about James? James asks, James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, from whence comes wars and fighting among you? This is not geopolitical wars. This is church stuff here. Come they not hence of your lusts, that war in your members? Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have. What does it mean kill then? What are we talking about killing if we're talking about warring among the church? Well, Jesus says if you hate a man in your heart, you've killed him already, right? Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and ye war, but ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. One of the biggest hindrances to the power of God in his church today as it relates to prayer is our own lusts, our self-sufficiency, our selfishness. We have not because we ask not, because we're very self-sufficient people. One of the things that I find so regrettable is how often uh, going to God and asking for something is step number two or three on the list instead of step number one. That the crisis comes or the trouble comes or the need comes and I... I, I, uh, consult the checkbook? Can I consult the, 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 um, the authorities that be? And then at the end I say, oh yeah, God, that probably wouldn't have been a good thing to ask you about. We have not because we ask not. And we ask and receive not because we're asking for the things we want rather than for the things that God wants. And we know that if we're failing to receive, it's not because of God's failures. What about James? Chapter 5, verses 4 through 16. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Maybe we've forgotten the power of prayer how prayer can and has raised people up from ailments, physical and spiritual. Maybe we've forgotten the power of a clean conscience, the ability of the body to intercede for one another unto great spiritual effect. Why do we leave so much up to chance when the fragrance of our prayers lifts up moment by moment, 24 hours a day to the God of the universe, when the altar of incense is before His throne? Why do we leave so much up to chance when we have a God that delights to hear our prayers, when they are a sweet fragrance to Him, a God that delights to answer our prayers as a loving Father? How about 1 John 5, verses 14 and 15? And this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He heareth us. And if we know that He hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desire of Him. We can have confidence that when we ask according to the will of the Lord, He hears. We talked about that already a little bit with the Father analogy. And if He hears us, we know that we have the things we ask of Him. Well, I thought I was praying to find God's will. What do you mean praying in God's will? Well, yeah. Sometimes prayer is a process. Sometimes my children's petitions are a process. Sometimes my child says, may I have that treat? And I say, no, it's too close to dinner. And then the child asks again in a week, may I have that treat? And I say, no, it's too close to dinner. And so my children start looking at a clock. 
And they say, all right, I asked once 30 minutes before dinner and it was too close to dinner. I asked 45 minutes before dinner and it was too close to dinner. I asked an hour before dinner and it was too close to dinner. But I asked two hours before dinner and dad said yes. So now they've learned something about their father and they can take that into their future petitions to get the things that they want. So they know no sense asking 30 minutes before dinner for something, for a treat. If I want a treat, it better be well before dinner, or I can wait until after dinner. You'll start learning about the Father, right? And as you learn about the Father, you learn what is His will. And as you learn what is His will, you seek to align your petitions with His will because that's where they're granted. And why? Not because God, like a father, is some heavy-handed dictator that must bend you to His will. No. It's because by (laughs) aligning myself with the request of my father, I'm aligning myself with what my father understands to be best for me. He's taking care of me. I've already been able to trust that point. And now I seek to align myself with the care that he has for me to receive the petitions of my heart. And this is the blessedness of a life in Christ. Do you live this way? Do you have this confidence? Is the peace of God yours? I know we've gone a little bit around the horn this morning. We talked about prayer, then we talked about horrible destruction, now we're back on prayer. Sorry if that was a little distracting. But focus with me. Is this blessedness yours? Because if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have access to it. The altar of incense is before the throne. The prayers of His saints lift up from it. If you are one of His saints, then those prayers are lifting up before Him. We studied this week the trumpets through the fifth, the first woe, partially into the sixth, the second woe. They're days of terror on earth. But what I hope to direct your mind toward this morning, other than the intellectual, is a remembrance that the prayers of God's saints were yet lifting up before the altar. They will then, they do now. So let us pray. How is prayer? What position does prayer have in your life? Are you praying? Are you seeking? Are you asking? Are you knocking? Do you believe that God can answer your prayers? Are you praying in a manner that is conducive to God answering your prayers? Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.